Good morning, everyone. I am coming to you here from our summer camp headquarters. Just wanted to give you a sneak peek into what summer camp is going to look like a week from now. Everything is online and you still have time to register your kids if you're interested. Uh, camp kids are not guaranteed at this point, but we will do our best. And if we cannot offer a camp kit to your, to your child, uh, we will send you a list of recommended supplies. So just wanted to give you a little glimpse of uh, what we have in store for your family in just a week. Uh, but today I am going to not talk about summer camp. I'm going to continue in our Bible reading plan. And uh, last month I had the chance to tell you about the first time that I told my husband that I loved him. And today I'm going to tell you about the first time that he told me he loved me. It was on our second date. And I remember just being totally overwhelmed. Like, I thought, what the heck is this guy thinking? We barely even know each other. And, I mean, it's always nice to be told you're loved, right? But then he starts preaching to me from Isaiah 54. And he reads this verse to me, Isaiah 54, verse 2, where he says, he had this memorized. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cord, strengthen your stakes. And then he goes on to say that he was loving me not because he felt this loving emotion, but in the same way that God was calling Israel to extend their tents, to extend their selves and their capacity for what God had in store, he was extending his life for what God had in store for him and I. And I remember sitting there just thinking, that is so unromantic. Like, this is the first time anyone has ever told me that they were in love with me. Um, it's on our second date, which I wasn't ready for it. And and now it's it's about Israel and, and how God is calling Israel to trust God more. And I, I didn't think it was romantic at all. I didn't think it was romantic. I didn't, I wasn't enamored with the way it was because... My view of love had been so distorted. I think a lot of us, our view of love has become so distorted because of the way that movies and stories have portrayed the way that it looks like, that it's all about how you feel about these rushing emotions and describing it to, you know, can't live without someone and, and all, all these, you know, emotional things. And oftentimes it comes down to how the person feels and what they get out of it. This, this exciting feeling of longing and being longed for. Uh, and, and because our view of love has become so distorted, I believe that our view of God has in turn become so distorted. That in our relationship with God, it too has become almost this about how we feel. I feel close to God. I don't feel close to God right now. Things are good right now. I, I, I need to pray because I'm going through this hard time. And, and so much of how we view God is about feeding what we currently want, what our feelings are going through. And it's seeing this God as, as someone on a distant throne that, that's just there for this almost consumeristic relationship. As we're going through the Bible reading plan, uh, this past week we read through the book of Hosea. And so I wanted to talk about the book of Hosea, which to me I believe is quite possibly one of the most romantic books in the Bible, but also one of the most gut-wrenching. It tells the story of this prophet, and God calls this prophet Hosea, and he says to him, Hey, I'm calling you to marry a woman 
I'm letting you know now, she is going to be so unfaithful to you. So unfaithful to the point that one day you will wake up, you'll look at your kids, and you'll wonder which one, if any of them, are even your own children. And then she's going to leave you, and she's going to sell herself to others. And then after nobody wants her anymore, after everything that she has to offer to the world and, and whatever people see as valuable, after that's all gone, she is going to be worth no more than the cost of a dead slave. And I want you to pay to get her back. The wife that's already yours, that's already in your family. And in doing so, my people, Israel, will see how much I love them and their unfaithfulness and their running away from me. And when the other nations and, and everything of the world no longer satisfies them and they no longer want Israel, I will be the one to pay the price to get my people back. It's a beautiful story. It's a romantic story and, and not the worldly sense, but in this divine sense. But it's painful. It's gut-wrenching. And throughout Hosea, we see a couple cycles, and the cycles often go through judgment to restoration, judgment to restoration, judgment to restoration. And so to go through the book, I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 2, where we're going to see a whole cycle of judgment and restoration. Now, this is still within the context of Hosea and his family. Chapters 1 through 3 is about Hosea and his family, and then the rest of Hosea is, is the Lord speaking about Israel. But Hosea chapter 2 really gives us a good, good, good glimpse of um, what this is all about and how the story of Hosea really plays into the story of God and us. So Hosea chapter 2, starting with verse 2, it says, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool, my linen, my olive oil, my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. It will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. Now, in reading this, you can almost feel the words. They're angry. These are angry words. And these are not the angry words of someone who doesn't care 
about their bride and their wife. This is someone who has been deeply hurt, someone that is aching, someone that is wanting, someone that is wounded and bleeding out. Now he says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her. And um, we believe that Jose is actually speaking to his kids. Which one, which one of them were his or not, we don't know. He's talking to them to bear, to serve as witnesses against what he's saying about their mother, about how she has been so unfaithful and how she has not, um, you know, been a part of their family. And he talks about how he is going to now uh, take away the provisions that he provided for his wife. He's going to take away the grain and the wine and the oil and, and all these things are the fruit of the land that God has provided to the nation of Israel. And he's taking it away because these very things that God provided, that God brought forth from the land, Israel is attributing to other gods. It would be almost as, as if I took my wedding band that my husband gave me on our wedding day and I went to another man and said, oh my goodness, thank you so much for giving this to me. Like, Men, can you imagine if your bride or your wife, the one that you love, the one that you're committed to, did that to you? It would be such a slap in the face. It would be painful. It would be humiliating. It would be shameful and it would be hurtful. And this is essentially what Israel was doing to God by, by attributing the provisions they had for their nation to the deities around them. And so he speaks about uh, blocking her path with thorn bushes and, and surrounding her. And this might sound like the angry retaliation of a husband. But this is actually compassionate and gentle pruning. That the Lord is going to block the path of Israel. That Hosea is going to block the path of Gomer to protect her, to protect the nation from the things that were distracting, from the things setting them so close to the things that were actually hurting them. That this might look like punishment, but in reality, this pruning is to draw God's people back into his goodness, to take away the distractions. With uh, the stay at home and the pandemic and everything, my I've been home a lot with my kids. And so often when I'm working from home and I'm letting my kids eat breakfast or lunch, I let them watch some TV. Okay, I let them watch a lot of TV. And I put the TV on and I say to my, uh, my four-year-old, I say, you can watch TV, but you have to eat. Now he'll take a few bites, but then he'll get so interested in the cartoon he's watching that he'll stop eating. And I'll say to him, hey, watch, you have to eat your food, otherwise I'm gonna turn the TV off. And he'll take a bite, but then you know a couple minutes will go by and he hasn't eaten, and then finally I'll, I'll turn the TV off and he'll throw this big tantrum and it's like, I wanna watch TV. And I said, you have to eat. Because the food that I'm giving him, that's what's gonna nourish him, that's what's gonna sustain him, that's what he needs, that's the good, that's the good stuff. The TV is just a distraction. Me turning it off is just to take away the distraction so that he can enjoy the good stuff. You know, oftentimes when things get taken away from our lives that we want, we see it as, oh, woe is me, or, or why is God taking these things away that I want? Why is he just punishing me? But are they not just the prunings so that we're not as distracted? that we can be reminded of the good things he is giving us. I would even ask you to reflect on what are some things that maybe God is pulling away from your life or removing from your life right now to not distract you. What is he asking you to bring your focus back on? So he's going to block her path, surround her, 
And then she says, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Now this, these words are almost parallel, almost identical to the words of a son in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament, where Jesus tells the story of a son who goes out, uses up all his money, uses up all his luxuries, has nothing left, and then he goes, you know what, I think I'll go back to my, my dad, uh, I'll be a servant, because even that's better than now. We see throughout the Bible this consistent image of those that return to God because it's an option and knowing that it's better than what else is out there in the world. And so even when God has been made an option, even when God has been something that we go back to when we're done with everything else, we see throughout this that he openly receives us back and has been waiting and has been pursuing. And so, in taking away the, the, the vines, the grain, the wine, the wool, all these things, these are, yes, angry words. But this is someone, these are the words of someone who is hurting. These are the words of someone that is angry, that has this jealous love, that, that just wants to love and be loved by his bride that is waiting, that is yearning, that, that is aching and bleeding out. And so after this, we then see a big shift in chapter two. And starting with verse 14, we now walk into the restoration piece of this chapter, where it says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the Valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plan her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. The tone dramatically shifts from judgment and anger to restoration and hope and pursuing and, and bringing back. And he talks about leading her into the wilderness and speaking tenderly to her. And when Israel was called out of Egypt, they wandered through the wilderness before they were entering into the promised land. He's wooing the people of God into the wilderness, to this place of being reminded of the love of God, the protection of God, that God is walking with them before bringing them home, before Hosea can bring his wife home, before the bride returns to her own home. This place of, of being reminded of the companionship, the friendship, the relationship with God. In the Valley of Accor, the Valley of Accor was a place where the nation of Israel stoned this man named Achan. 
Uh, Israel had just won this huge battle in Jericho. And so God told them, hey, anything that you find in the city, you must devote to me. Well, Achan, what he did was he took some of the stuff from the city and he, he kept it for himself. In the next battle that Israel went into, they lost terribly. And they found out that it was because of Achan and his disobedience. And so they killed Achan in the Valley of Accor. So now the Valley of Accor represents their disobedience. It represents their past um, wrongdoings. It represents their shameful history. And so God says, I'm going to turn that Valley of Accor into a day, into a door of hope. Because what God often does is he takes our painful past, our shameful histories, the moments that we don't want to remember, the moments that we feel humiliated and guilty by, and he turns them into stories of victory, into stories of conquest, into stories of how God's light has broken through all of that shame and darkness. And so our shameful past now becomes our hopeful future. And we see that God repeatedly does that for you, for me, and for this entire nation. And he says, you will call me my master. You will no longer call me my, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I really think that this is what really gives us a breakdown of what Jose is about. That God is saying, I am not this distant master. You are not servant slaves that I am just expecting you to bow down, serve, and worship me from a distance so that makes me feel good. Know that the way that God feels about his nation, about his people, about you and I, is the way that spouses feel about each other. About 10 years ago, there was this movie, Inception, that I really liked. But there's this one line that always stuck with me. Didn't really have that much to do with the movie, but it always stuck with me, in which the wife says to someone, do you know what it means to be a lover? To be a half of a whole? And that line always stuck with me because it was just so poignant in what it means to be married, to be betrothed, to be with someone, to be the other half of someone else, to be a half of a whole. That brokenness when, when they do something that's hurtful, the, the joy when, when you are together as one and in love. And so God says, you will call me your husband, not master. Because when a master, when a, the servant or slave of a master runs away, the master may very well pursue them the way that a husband would pursue a wife that's run away. But the difference in this is that a master would pursue his servant or slave back. Why? Because of his value. Uh, maybe he's embarrassed by the way it looks to the people around him. Um, he, maybe he feels devalued. And so he would bring that slave or servant back to make him look good, to bring back his worth, to increase his value. It's all about his pride. But a husband that goes seeking out for his bride, that pursues his bride and brings her back, he doesn't do it for his own value or worth. He does it out of love, out of aching, out of hurt, out of jealous love and anger and, and devotion. And it's not ultimately about his value and his worth, because what worth is it to bring back someone that has betrayed you and that has scorned you? He brings back the wife. He brings back the bride because he recognizes her value, because he recognizes her worth, because of his appreciation and longing and love for her, the other half of his whole. And so God now says, you will call me your husband and not master. Because the Lord is calling us into this relationship with him. 
Now, maybe some of you, when you think about God, he does seem like someone far away and distant. And maybe you call upon him when it feels good or when you need it or and when your humanness needs needs something, a crutch or, or, you know, feeling spiritual. You know, everything about this world is telling us it's all about how we feel and it's all about what we can get. But this love, the love that God has for us, the love that Hosea is called to love in his wife, it goes beyond the world. It doesn't make sense. It is as 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, love that is not self-seeking. It's not about your, it's not about myself. It's about the other. That God's love for you is so deep, so rich, and his pursuit of you is ongoing, even when he's just an option that, that you plan on going back to when you're ready. And when you understand this deep, deep, deep love of God, when you come running back, when you realize that that's better than anything else of this world, your ability, your capacity to love, I believe supernaturally increases. That not only are you able to be loved fully, but you now in turn are able to love others. I used to look at this book of Hosea and I used to look at this prophet and I wondered, how could God have asked this of Hosea? How could God have asked Hosea, hey, you're going to be heartbroken, you are going to be cheated on, and I still want you to love your bride and I still want you to pursue her. And Hosea knew in advance what he was called to do. In the same way that God knew in advance the love story with us, in the same way that God already knew in advance, that he was going to have to pay to bring us back to restore us. That Hosea story of judgment, restoration, judgment, restoration, judgment, restoration, is that not what marriage often looks like? Of pain and restoring, of, of qualms and fighting and restoring, of, of not understanding and your wounds from your past coming out against each other and restoring. And so I looked at Hosea and I thought, how could God ask this of him? And I realized that God asks this. When we understand his love, he asks this of us. A couple years ago, my husband Jay and I, we were going through a really, really difficult time. Uh, we were going through a season where, um, to just be very candid, I we weren't sure that we were going to make it. Yes, we were both Christians, and yes, we had both graduated seminary, and yes, we were both in ministry, and we understood all these things, and yet marriage the ups and the downs and the wounds and, and your history, it all comes up and it becomes a very painful reality. And we were at our breaking point. And so we had spent a couple days where we were still living together, still raising our child together, um, but we weren't even talking to each other. And I took some time and I got on my knees and I went into my prayer closet and I said to God, I said, God, I don't know if I can do this anymore. God, to be honest, I don't know if I wanna do this anymore. God, I don't know how you could call me to do this anymore. This is so painful. This is hard. This is difficult. This is the most difficult relationship or anything I've ever experienced. I, I, I can't continue to be in this marriage. And in my prayer, I heard the voice of God break in. And I heard him suddenly say, I am calling you to be Hosea in your marriage. 
And I remember thinking, that is not fair, God. How could you ask that of me? And I was reminded that he was the Hosea first, that he loved me first, and he was empowering me to love and wait and to continue to pursue because I already knew what love was. I knew what it meant to be loved. I understood his love. And so now it's my turn to love the way that he loved. Well, later my husband comes home saying that he was ready, that we were ready to talk. And I let him speak first. And he said to me that he had drawn away. He went to his, his place of prayer. And as he was praying, he heard God say to him that God was calling him to be Hosea. Now, I was astounded. But my initial reaction was, God's calling you to be Hosea? I'm the Hosea in our marriage. And he laughed and he said, he said, you think you're Hosea in our marriage? I'm the Hosea in our marriage. And we look back on that and, and we laugh about it. But we were both called to be Hosea in our marriage to each other because we both understood God's love. We both had the capacity to love deeply. We both knew what it was to be loved and now we're calling to, to love in that way, in the way that God loved us, to show the love of God to each other. Maybe you're in a marriage right now that's that's really difficult. What does it look like in your marriage to be Hosea for your spouse? Maybe you're not married, maybe you're single. Maybe this is the season to be so consumed by the love of God for you to first know how deeply he loves you so that you can then love others. And this relationship goes beyond just marriage. It goes to our families. It goes to our friendships. It goes to our church family. Because when we know the love of God so deeply, when we see the way that he's pursuing us, the way that he sees us, us have to his whole, that he doesn't need us, yet wants us and pursues us, pays the price for us, and he calls us then to be loved and then to love. Let's pray. Lord God, I am always amazed in reading this story and reading about the call that you gave to Hosea and how in it we saw just a sneak peek into your deep love for us, your pursuing of us, your waiting for us, your open arms for us, the way that you, you come running to us, that you take our shame and you take our past and you, and you take the times that we have been unfaithful and you turn that into stories and futures of hope as we return back to you. Lord, right now, a lot of things are coming up to the surface, our wounds, our past, our history, our tensions with others. Before anything else, may we be reminded of your deep love for us. I pray the love of God to fill every single home right now, every person hearing this, that, that they would not just feel your love. I know it feels so good to feel it, but but to know it deeply, richly, not just in our hearts, but also in our minds, and not just in our minds, but also in our hearts, that would consume us richly. May we know the love of God, and, and then may we be so empowered, emboldened, able to love deeply, to love others, to be a pointing finger to who you are. I pray for all of our families, your protection over our hearts, over our minds, over our relationships. 
Lord, may we, in the midst of all the chaos and and sickness and, and darkness surrounding us right now, may we be light that breaks forth. In Jesus' name we pray.